Welcome to the Nature MI podcast. Here, we uncover nature-inspired solutions to the world's most urgent problems, like climate change and global pandemics. We talk with thought leaders and innovators who are taking their cues from nature, and we explore ways to unravel nature's deepest secrets. Now here's your host, a man who finds inspiration in nature on a daily basis, Dr. Victor Shamas. Greetings. I'm truly excited to bring you this episode of Nature Am I, which features a fascinating conversation with someone who is renowned and admired in the world of yoga. My guest today, Joseph LePage, is a yoga scholar and a pioneer in the rapidly growing field of yoga therapy. In 1994, Joseph started Integrative Yoga Therapy, a training program for therapists that integrates all facets of yoga into the healing process, including poses, breath work, meditation, guided imagery, and mudras or hand gestures. He has written or co-authored several very successful books on yoga and yoga therapy, including a guide to the Yoga Sutras. These sutras are a classical Indian text believed to have been written or compiled by the sage Patanjali somewhere between 1500 and 2500 years ago. In our conversation, recorded June 25th, 2020, Joseph and I discussed the role of nature in yoga, and specifically the relationship between humans and nature. Joseph provided insights into these topics that were truly remarkable and inspiring. I hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I have. And now, here's my conversation with Joseph LePage. Joseph LePage, welcome to the Nature MI podcast. We're really happy to have you. Great to be here. Part of the reason I'm excited to, to have this conversation is to talk about the role of nature in yoga and yoga therapy. And so one of the things I wanted to start off by asking is, and something that you wrote, you said, yoga is actually linking together two things that have never been separate. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Uh, what are those two things? How did they come to be perceived as separate? Why do we need to link them? Let me put this all in the context of the Yoga Sutras. So in the Yoga Sutras, um, they're saying that we need to discover our true self. So this true self is called Purusha. So it's not something that we can gain anywhere. It's not something that we can achieve through spiritual practice and not even something that we can attain through wisdom. And so the true self is really who we are. So it's something that we recognize and we recognize it in ourselves, it's an authenticity. It's a feeling of authenticity. It's a knowing of ourselves, of life, of the world, how things are put together, that goes beyond philosophy. It goes beyond the mind. It's a sense of self that is absolute knowing. I know absolutely, unquestionably, who I am, beyond any belief, beyond any religion, beyond any philosophy, beyond any practice of yoga. So um, 
the the yoga is uh, is a joining, but actually all we're really doing is releasing an illusory self, and we're recognizing an authentic self. And what's most critical about the recognition of that authentic self is that people in a certain way are creating their life's meaning. And a lot of that's good. I want to save the environment. I want to help people. I want to help the poor. Even even it could be something as simple as in these last days, in these uh, demonstrations for Black Lives Matter, a lot of people saw the importance of that movement that never would have gone to a demonstration before. So suddenly they're recognizing that, hey, these are people just like me. So all of that's good. And all of that, I think, is a reflection of this knowing. But that's all at the level of the personality. And this knowing that yoga is talking about, it uh, occupies every fiber of our being, of a being that's no longer physical of a being that's not a body and it's not a mind, because a mind is always full of ideas about who I am. And those ideas are always going to be questioned. I think I'm a good person. I think I'm a good yoga teacher. I think I have wisdom. And then you do something dumb. Well, maybe I'm not so wise. And this knowing of this true self of this Purusha, it's something beyond the mind. It's something beyond the body. It's a feeling that goes beyond our feelings. It's absolute. It's incontrovertible. What we're joining together, actually, on the spiritual path, we take all of this knowledge, all of this wisdom, all of these practices, they're moving us forward. They're releasing us from patterns of thought, from destructive attitudes, from unconscious ways of being. And then where do they all take us? Where does all that practice Where does that spiritual self finally lead us? It leads us to a self that is beyond thought, beyond questioning. What you're linking Purusha to is what in yoga? I mean, you you say these things were already uh, not separate in the first place, but you're bringing Purusha in alignment with what? You're actually bringing Purusha into alignment with Bodhi, the higher mind. And so we start out with an everyday mind and we go to our place before we begin to practice yoga. And that place, before we begin to practice yoga, we need to put it in the context of nature. We can put it in the context of the natural world and we can look at all of these different um, half ape, half human species that evolved over millions of years. And they were all initially completely tied to nature. And then at a certain point, as the human being began to evolve, he became a creature of both nature and culture. Nature, culture, and the personality is a reflection of both nature drives and instincts and culture. So that would be what's called in yoga this lower mind, manas. Because even though it's a mixture of ape and cultural human, the level of choice from a yoga perspective would be zero, almost zero. Because at the level of the personality, we only have choices within the options given to us by culture, society, and nature. 
nature in the form of drives and instinct. So this would be the lower mind, manas. We have this higher mind called buddhi. So what is buddhi from my perspective? It's just our evolutionary future. So if we've evolved from ape to cultural human, and then our future is, I could call it completely human. And this would be a, a, a philosophy of a man named Sri Aurobindo. He calls it the higher man or the superman. But we could just say a, a, a natural evolution following from ape to human to completely conscious or completely free. And uh, the intermediary step to that is this higher mind, buddhi. So buddhi coming from the root bud, meaning awake, or to awaken like the Buddha, it means that uh, whereas the ape would have no free choice, but they certainly have culture, they learn to make tools. And then the human at the level of the lower mind is this mixture of instincts and culture. So at the level of buddhi, I begin to gain freedom. Something comes up in my mind and I can choose is that something that really is going to make me happy? Is that something that's really going to make me free? Or is that something that's going to be, create more suffering? Now, when people are on the spiritual path, initially, they may see those thoughts, but they may not have the possibility of actually choosing to do something different because the conditioning is so powerful. Maybe the most powerful example of that is the spiritual personality. So why do we need cultures? Why do we need to be part of a spiritual culture? Why do we need to put on turbans or, or chant mantras or have these malas or be part of a spiritual group? And why do we have types of yoga? How could there really be a type of yoga? Actually, it seemed like there would be as many types of yoga as there are yogis because everyone ultimately would want to be completely free and independent. This was the philosophy of Krishnamurti. But then you go to his center there in Ojai, different from the other centers, well, they don't have a guru. Well, you have to decide yourself, well, but what do I do? What do I study? What do I learn? And so human beings, even at a spiritual level, they need culture. But they're developing this higher mind buddhi. And then the Yoga Sutra says that ultimately this buddhi uh, becomes so purified that it becomes indistinguishable from Purusha. So that potential, what we're really merging, is the potential for Purusha and the reality of Purusha. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. You've mentioned nature in the form of, of instincts and impulses, right? But how does nature fit in, in general, into yoga and yoga therapy? I think that the main thing is that when we look at a book like the Yoga Sutras, and it's based on this philosophy called Samkhya, which makes this very clear distinction between the nat natural world, Prakriti, and the spiritual realm, Purusha. Part of that, if you take it at a level of very limited understanding, you could say, I only want to be spirit. I don't want to be nature. Nature involves relationships, needs, demands from others, even the natural world. The natural world in what sense? If I have my begging bowl 
then I'm just going to take what I need to eat and I go back to my cave. And can be taken even further like the Jains who starve themselves to death as the ultimate practice. It's on a certain level that spirituality is, can be taken as a complete separation from nature. But uh, my view is that what Patanjali is talking about is something different. He's talking about that limited nature of our own minds on that journey from being ape to being, if you want to call it, let's use Aurobindo's term of the, the superman or the superhuman. And I would just say the human who is uh, sane enough to be free. And so the human who is willing to give up drives, impulses, instincts, and culture in order to be free. So this is what we're separating from. We're not separating from the natural world. We're separating from our own insane vision of the natural world. And so that insane vision is an extension of something that was completely natural. So at the time of Patanjali or the time of the Upanishads, nature was unlimited. India was the Garden of Eden. No one could ever imagine a time when cutting down all the trees would threaten our own survival. They were talking about separating ourselves from the insanity of that mixture of instincts and culture, which causes us to be driven by likes, by dislikes, by hates, by desires, by judgments. And so Patanjali would say, all of that is not who we are. So then once we come to that place where I can watch all my thoughts, so I may have a thought that, hey, if I cut down that tree, I can get the wood. Well then, but maybe insects need that tree. Maybe this tree is part of a whole web of life. So this is where this enlightened vision it allows us to see nature in a new way. First, I have to separate from my nature, which is that nature being embedded in instincts and in culture. I have to separate from that in order to see clearly. Along this route, culture changes as well. This new awareness of racism this week is a changing culture. Once we get rid of Donald Trump, I believe that there is going to be a more green America. I think these are cycles. As people move forward on the spiritual path, as they move forward in yoga, culture is also changing. This mind which is not free is this mixture of instincts and culture. Well, culture is also evolving. And that mind is also evolving toward booty. And at the same time, each of us has the possibility of evolving our own minds. But what yoga is saying is that you can be completely free and you do not need culture at all to make changes. And when you recognize that true self, that true self is so whole and so complete that all of the props, all of the props in the form of culture, of society, and of drives and instincts they can all be dropped, or even still, they can be chosen. We can choose our own thoughts, and we can choose our own emotions. So within that choice, then you look at what does Patanjali say about nature? Well, he, he says all kinds of beautiful things. 
he says that the qualities of perfection of the body, this lightness, grace, perfect uh, diamond-like form, once we have that freedom, then we can come back into alignment with nature in a new way. But no longer at the level of culture and drives and instincts, but at the level of the cosmos. So at the level of the personality, I might say, I know I am one with the cosmos. But that's not going to free me from likes and dislikes, hatreds, negativity, depression, anxiousness. But once I recognize that true self, then I can come back, I can reunite with nature as part of it. I see that the animals around me, even the little animals on our yoga center here, which is nine-tenths covered by rainforest, so those little animals are still going to be fighting for survival. But I come into contact with nature at a new level, recognizing that I'm part of it. I am one with nature. And that nature is evolution. Nature is evolution. And then, but through yoga, what I'm saying is, I'm evolving to a point where within the natural world, I can be the whole cosmos because I have complete freedom. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it strikes me that the joining together that you were referring to of those things that aren't separate are your true self and your connection to nature on a very cosmic level. And yeah. one of the I ironies that strikes me as somebody as an observer of the yoga world from with one foot outside it is the Samkhya philosophy, the philosophical basis, might be the thing that splits them up, splits up what was never needed to be split in the first place. So in other words, the philosophical basis of yoga creates the need for yoga because by splitting things off into here's nature, here's your true self, now let's find a way to bring them together. <laughs> well, if we hadn't split them apart in the first place, would we have a need to do that? Samkhya is not regarded as a, a valid, really, from a cosmological point in India. So what's more regarded as a, as, as a cosmology would really be Vedanta. There's just this oneness, and nothing's ever separate. Uh, even within Vedanta, uh, we need to find that, that true self. And that true self would also recognize themselves as one with nature. Patanjali is saying that to recognize that true self, you're going to have to come to a place of recognition beyond thoughts, beyond feelings, and that's the place of samadhi. The Samkhya philosophy is where you take all of these different aspects of nature and you separate them. You say, I'm, I'm not the five physical elements. I'm not my emotions. I'm not my mind. I'm not even my higher mind. I'm none of these things. I'm pure spirit. And uh, that was using a kind of a cognitive approach, looking at this is not me, this is not me, this is not me. Finally, what's left is spirit, that inner observer. The Yoga Sutras is very much based on samadhi. And so in that experience of samadhi, what I recognize experientially is that absolute wholeness. 
that absolute truth. So within samadhi, we can say there are certain qualities. One is knowing, knowing who I am. That is not a philosophy. It ties in directly with the Bhagavad Gita where he talks about the self. Fire cannot burn it. Weapons cannot harm it. Death cannot kill it. And Patanjali is talking about that same self. And the philosophies are different, but that self can only be one. From the Yoga Sutra's perspective, we have to go in. We have to live that knowing. And within it, there's a sense of timelessness. Time ceases to exist. Limitation ceases. So in that state, then I recognize who I am. Now, if you go to strictly to Samkhya philosophy, and not all the Samkhyas are the same, one way of interpreting that would be that that true self, it's different from this creation. It's separate from this creation. There are not very many people that would accept that as a cosmology among great Indian thinkers. Because this Purusha is also given by nature, this greater nature. So that's the, that's the nature that offers this Purusha. And so really, in the end, there's only this oneness with all of creation. This oneness was given by Ishvara. So Ishvara is this deity of creation. So Ishvara gives the plants, it gives the animals. Ishvara gives the ego. Ishvara gives our animal instincts. Ishvara gives the personality. And Ishvara also gives evolution. And Ishvara also gives free will. And I choose where I want to be within that evolution. And I choose to evolve. And then the question is, oh, how to evolve? And Patanjali says that without the practice of samadhi, this path will be very difficult. He does give one insight to that. He says, if you surrender to Ishvara, if you surrender to the Lord of creation, but that surrender means giving up this personality. And the personality is that whole complex of thoughts, uh, feelings, drives, instincts, culture, society, family. You don't need to give up any of that, but you need to give up letting it control you if you want to be free. If you want to be free, and to do that, Patanjali would say, well, if you're not practicing samadhi, from this yoga perspective, uh, that's going to be really difficult. And even at lower levels of meditation, Patanjali would say that those lower levels of meditation are never going to be a solution for you because they involve bliss. And bliss itself, that meditational bliss, it becomes a kind of culture. It becomes a kind of satisfaction of drives and needs. Maybe an addiction? Even an addiction, yeah. And so uh, in one of his sutras, he talks about the, the Prakriti Laya, the people who gain these powers and stay there. So all of that needs to be gone beyond, according to Patanjali. And then what's there at the end? And, and this is where it gets interesting, because this is where we have to go completely beyond words. Because look at Buddhism. Uh, certainly the experience of these enlightened masters, whether it's Hindu or Buddhist, that true self, whether it's Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, 
can't be uh, a Buddhist enlightenment and a Hindu enlightenment. Certainly the experience of that true self is the same. What the Zen master achieves after 12 years of staring at the wall, when there's no conditioning left, and yet look at how different the cultural framework is. One talks about nothingness, and the other talks about everythingness, which is right. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and, and then of course, at that level, where you're in samadhi and the description of the the experiences from uh, either from advanced states in vipassana meditation or in zazen so that awareness is the same or similar and yet the cultural description is so different because all of those go completely beyond culture but what we could say is that whatever that experience is it should make the person completely free What if instead of saying, I am not this physical body, I'm not this energy body, I'm not these thoughts and emotions, uh, if we said, let's embrace that we are all of those things in an integrated way, and doing that, wouldn't that take you to the same place? I mean, rather than, than samadhi coming as a stripping away of everything, what if you and I expanded ourselves into all of those layers simultaneously? Is, does the, does uh, Patanjali talk about that or anybody in the yoga world? Yeah, he, he talks about um, actually using the experiences of the, of the mind as a way of becoming free. And that, in a certain sense, what you're talking about is the essence of Tantra. And Patanjali does offer that in Chapter 3, ways of opening yourself to these experiences. I would say we can open ourselves to nature, we can open ourselves to life, we can open ourselves to living, we can open ourselves to everything that life offers. And then there's a question of, are you living all of those offerings freely or are they living you? So in Tantra, what we would say is, yes, I can live all the experiences of life, but, but who is that I who is living? Can I live those experiences or are they living me? And then you can say, well, perhaps we could just take our happiness and our suffering. And that's what life is. It's part suffering. It's part joy. And all of this is life. And that's also true. But then you could say, do I even know when I'm suffering? Do I know how much I'm suffering? Do I know what my possibilities are? Do I know to what extent I'm free and to what extent I'm imprisoned? From that tantric perspective, I could live everything, even from the perspective of the Yoga Sutras. What yoga would say is that the purpose, the meaning of this life, certainly if you can live it dharmically and live well and contribute to your own good and the good of others, that would be a dharmic lifestyle. And yoga would say, but ultimately, what we're here for, that prakriti exists for knowing purusha. So once knowing purusha, we can go into all of those areas of life, uh, relationship, or work, or dharma, and through that freedom, through that inner freedom that we have, and part of that not, wouldn't necessarily be freedom from thoughts, or freedom from emotions, but it would certainly be freedom from unconscious thoughts, 
unconscious emotions. So an instinct or an impulse comes up, and as a free human being, I could choose to follow it or not. Whereas I would say a chimpanzee would have very little choice, but even some, you see some higher mind in chimpanzees. In human beings, choice within the boundaries that have been laid out for them. Culture, society, family. And that's why there are spiritual communities, because people are cultural beings. So here at Enchanted Mountain, in a certain way, we're very open. And we're very open to psychology, psychotherapy. And so there is a certain spiritual culture in a sense. But there's also a knowing that this self, ultimately, that you experience, it allows you to be, the word is kaivalya. And so this, this becomes really interesting, and it takes us into this whole dichotomy, this dualism, because kevala means alone, only. And some people take it in that direction. One of the greatest philosophers of the Yoga Sutras of our age, the century, a man named Hari Hariyananda, he was, I believe, a university professor. And then eventually he had himself walled up inside a cave, bricked up, and only received food through a little slit. So that's, that's one concept of aloneness. <laughs> now, the, 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 the tantric concept of aloneness would be completely different. That I can be completely present in life, and I can be completely free. And that's going to be a more difficult path, because different from the great Hari Hari Ananda, the only thing he has to disturb him is whether there was enough salt on his food or something like that. But we have relationships, we have work, we have coronavirus, and, you know, we've got all of these things. I had to go and uh, take my eyesight test for my driver's license renewal today. And different from the United States in Brazil, even though we're a democracy, we're still kind of a monarchy in the sense that people are seen as the tool of government. And the government exists for its own good. And individuals take whatever crumbs government may give them. So I, I was waiting two hours for my eyesight test that took five minutes. So there you are, you know, and it's obviously just that idea that um, people exist for the good of government. It's a horrible idea. And the United States is moving away from that, and it'll move away from that more once Trump gets out of office. You know, you almost hope that the, the virus continues for a while just to make sure Trump gets out of there. It's a world no one wants, no one who's sane wants, a world where everyone's just in it for me. But you see, that, that in a certain way is going back to that animal instinct, that nature that we want to get away from. Whereas the, uh, in a troop of baboons, it's only that head baboon that gets to mate, right? And he gets all the fruit, and he goes and whacks everyone else. And so that's this part of human nature that we want to move beyond. We see things every day. Like I'm there in the line two hours and nowhere to sit. But you see, different from Hari Hari Ananda, those are our learnings every day. This world that you're talking about where I go out and I live, and I'm part of life, this is a tantric vision. I'm part of life, I'm part of relationships, I'm part of, of everything in this world. And especially in, in our case here where we're so, so focused on water sports. You know, this is a surfing town. And we're all paddlers, surfers, canoers, everything. 
hikers. I hardly go a day here without hiking. That connection with nature is so strong here. Now, the question is, how do I work with all of these lessons? Are they making me more free or are they just making me unhappy? At least here in Brazil, I see this COVID virus making a lot of yoga people unhappy. You know, they shouldn't be like this. People should be helping each other. All of that is true. So, but yoga says is that we should be neutral. But look at the word that's used for neutrality, upekshanam. It means indifferent. So now we're getting right to the heart of this kevala, this being alone. It really doesn't mean indifferent. It really means equanimity and neutrality. So I might feel like uh, going up and punching the guy without a mask or saying something. The yoga is how do we use all of these situations? And then yoga would say that we can be dharmic. We can deal with all these situations. And it would also say that there is, once we've recognized our true self, there's absolutely no need for us to suffer. One thing that's very difficult if we're in this ecological movement is to watch natural devastation and not suffer. That's tough. And so what do we do? And especially when we're in a place like Brazil, where there's almost, on the part of the president we have now, almost a defense of destroying the environment. Fortunately or unfortunately, we can only take care of our little area and we can support movements that support the whole. We can hope for a greener America and we can also hope for technology. You know, I, I believe a lot of the changes are going to come through technology. If you look at one of the biggest areas of destruction for the environment, it's cows. It's the meat industry. The rainforest is being destroyed for a couple of things that make no sense at all, growing sugar cane and raising cows, as if sugar were, <laughs> were something worth destroying the world for or eating meat. Look at things like sugar substitutes, or how about a meat substitute? You know, a meat substitute that would drive the uh, value of a cow down, or energy substitutes that are driving the price of oil down, or electric cars. So I I'm a believer in humanity. I'm a believer in this higher mind booty. And I believe that this light of Purusha, it is filtering down into our culture. And so I see that the next generation, the next generation just meaning a year from now, I see a more green laws starting to be passed. I see more of an acceptance of people as people whether it's part of the uh, gay movement or Black Lives Matter, I see that overall, even though there are setbacks, I see all of that gaining ground. So ultimately, yes, we can be part of nature, but also Patanjali would say that the ultimate objective is to be part of nature at the end of evolution. So through yoga, we go to the end of evolution where I'm part of nature, I can protect nature because I no longer, with my true self, I no longer need those resources in the same way. I don't need to go out and ride a motorbike to get high. I don't need to cut down trees to make something, make some beautiful furniture because I am complete and content within myself. So then with that completeness, with that aloneness, with that autonomy, being whole and complete within my own being, I can choose how I'm going to live. That aloneness you talk about, I think of it as indivisibility, that there's only one. And right. 
I have actually had a chance to peek at one of your training manuals for yoga therapists. And uh, I saw an exercise that was called, Who Am I? And you wrote, let go of the physical body only to allow the sea of oneness to be absorbed into every cell, tissue, and organ of the body. Right. So what does it mean to let go of the body? Certainly not awareness of the body, because if you let go of awareness of the body, you wouldn't be aware of the experience of oneness that's being absorbed into your cells and tissues and organs, right? Right. Yeah. The experience of samadhi can only happen in a body. It requires a body. It requires a mind. It requires a healthy body. It requires a healthy mind. It also uh, allows you to see a part of yourself that within the experience of samadhi, it is the whole universe. It is that ocean. And uh, the body may be there, but that body at that point is at the level of something that goes deeper than subatomic particles. It would be that matter which the body shares with all matter. So for now, they say that these quarks and all of these other things are, they keep going. Every year there's a new discovery in quantum physics, but um, that will never reach the end until mm-hmm. scientific instruments come together with some kind of, uh, with the mind itself, with knowing. So at the point where spirituality and science meet, then we'll start to have scientific instruments that can see what is actually most subtle. Uh, within samadhi, obviously there is a body, but that would be where the oneness comes in. The oneness would come in is that at that point, you are no longer just this body. And you are all of the atoms that have ever been at any time, at any place. And what we release is that idea of my body. It's not that we have to release the idea of the body, but rather if this body is a drop, then I become that ocean. So what is that ocean? That ocean is every particle of matter that has ever been and will ever be. And also what is the source of that matter? So the source of that matter is Ishvara or God. So we become one with God. We become one with everything. And yet uh, this body, this individual body, is just a vehicle. So I can appreciate it here. I can respect it. I can care for it. But I also don't want to be, get addicted to it because I'm going to be leaving it behind. So I want to become one with that body that is the body of everything. And I want to become one with the source of that body that is the body of everything. And then yoga would say, I want to go one step further. I want to go into something called asamparajnata samadhi or nirbija samadhi. So that I am one with that body that is the body of everything. But I am so one with it that I no longer have an awareness of an I. So this would be the highest level of samadhi. And that aloneness, that kaivalya, that kaivalya would be living in that oneness and seeing everything from that cosmic perspective. So if you want to call it as the one with everything, the only difference is that Patanjali would say that first you need to find that self in which all of these eyes, the cultural eye, the social eye, the familial eye, in which all these eyes have been removed. And so that would be samadhi, and that would be the autonomy, and that would be the aloneness. And so Patanjali, a little different from Vedanta, he would say, 
first you, ne you need to be willing to be alone and then you can be one with everything. So turning it around, because I yeah. think what's, what's happening for me in this process uh, starting in 2020 is that I have felt, you know, my body to be nature's body. And when I think about your work and the five koshas, these five sheaths or layers of the body, it strikes me, first of all, that all of them have in common that they link what we're calling our body to everything else because food has to move they through do. you, water has to move through you, energy moves. All of these things, thought, emotions, uh, wisdom are transmitted between self and surroundings. That means right. that if I, if, if I connect with all these five layers of the body, I'm ultimately connecting with that which is beyond the body as I've defined it. Mm -hmm. And so my feeling in this whole thing, and part of the reason I'm having this dialogue with you is that rather than, than try to, to pull myself away from all of those, I want to say I am the atoms of my body. I am the cells and the molecules and the yeah. tissue and the organs and the water that flows in and out and the food that flows in and out and the energy that flows in and out. Because ultimately, it strikes me that your work is about being mindful of what is happening in this body. And if you're fully mindful of what is happening in this body, you're aware that this body is nature, is everything, because I, I've never been separate. At best, I've been semi-permeable. So I just want right. to get your take on, on this position. If you were to become, really to come, become your body, become the cells, become the tissues, become the bones so completely and become the natural world around you, and really become all that, and release any judgments, release any demands, release any dislikes, so that in that total global acceptance, there was no longer suffering. I would call that samadhi on the body, samadhi on nature, and samadhi on daily life. So the only question here would be, within that all, within all that, can you become so much one with nature that all suffering is released? Or is it necessary to release suffering? What if it turns out that you can relate to the suffering of all beings, but not, not be attached? What you were talking about before sounds like the Buddhist idea of non-attachment, or ultimately what science is, is seeking with objectivity. Objectivity is, is not about you know, distancing yourself from the world you're studying. What objectivity is supposed to be is not having an investment in an outcome. So right. it's like, yeah, there's suffering, you know, there's pain in my body, there's, there's stuff going on in the world, and I have tremendous compassion for those you know, medical staff who, who have to deal with overcrowded ICUs, and those people who are dying alone from COVID-19, and those people who've been experiencing 400 years of racial injustice, and those people who are trapped in a, in a pattern where they have to be racist, because yeah. that can't be fun. No. <laughs> right? no. So if I'm all-encompassing of those things, I can feel that suffering, but it's not mine suffering, it's just the suffering exactly. of the universe, or it's my suffering in, this, in an all-encompassing way. But we don't, we don't need to suffer from our suffering. Right. We don't need to take it personally. Absolutely. And so that brings us back to a kind of a place of autonomy, yeah. of neutrality, and in a certain way, kaivalya, that I can be sympathetic, I can be compassionate, I can be one, and at the same time, I don't need to be codependent. 
So I think there's a definite line between, definite difference between empathy, between feeling, between living, between caring, between understanding. And the other would be being codependent. And you see a lot of people in the ecological movement codependent on their ecological views and opinions. So they need to feel that in order to feel that they're doing something that they're, and they need others to affirm them. And they demand, and they even will incite conflict because conflict with people who are non-ecological gives them uh, that feeling of being solid, of being a person, of being real. But ultimately, I think it saps their energy because anger really saps energy. Well, Joseph, as we bring this to a close, it's been such a pleasure. We had really a great talk. Lots of I would like to ideas. ask you one last question, if you don't mind, yep. which is, uh, could you leave us with some, some words of wisdom as we close this, something that uh, maybe wraps up this discussion or maybe something that you're thinking about right now, passionately about, or whatever it is you would like to share. So just some last, last message before we close up this discussion. I would just say, in any situation, what would it look like to look through the eyes of the heart? That's a beautiful Great. thought. Well, thanks so much for Great taking the time. To you. Yeah. Great talking with you, too. Namaste. Namaste. Bye for now. This concludes Episode 10 of the Nature of My podcast, entitled Yoga, Nature, and the Body. You can listen to this or any of the other episodes by going to naturemi.com. Follow us on Spotify, Google Play, Podbean, and Apple Podcasts. If you go to naturemi.podbean.com, you will find the program notes for this podcast, which include links to Joseph LePage's work, as well as more detailed information about some of the concepts and terms used in the podcast. As always, thanks for listening, and until the next time, stay tuned stay well, and stay inspired. You have been listening to the Nature MI podcast. To learn more about what we're doing to bring humanity more into balance with nature, please visit us at naturemi.com. We also welcome your ideas and feedback. If you would like to be a guest on a future podcast, let us know about your nature-inspired solutions and strategies. Thanks for listening.